with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and let's begin with a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for your word, which is alive. It has been breathed into by your living spirit, and now we pray that you would breathe these truths to us, fresh and new and inspiring and encouraging. Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and we, your sons and your daughters, will give careful attention to the proclamation of your word. Amen. Did you see in the newspaper, it was both in the last Thursday's PDN and then again this Wednesday's uh, Port Townsend Leader, an article, I thought it was pretty interesting, was on the front page of last Thursday's uh, PDN. It reads, Trenton L. Secora made his first court appearance Wednesday morning in Jefferson County Superior Court. He has been held for investigation of first-degree kidnapping, second-degree assault of a police officer, third-degree police, eluding a police vehicle, possession of a stolen motor vehicle, first-degree possession of stolen property, two counts of third-degree theft, second-degree malicious mischief, third-degree malicious mischief, DUI drugs, reckless driving and driving with a suspended license. He's being held on $251,370 bond. Now, it would be fair to say I don't actually know the facts about all these things, and I don't actually know if he's guilty or not, but I know with, what, 13 counts, like Ricky Ricardo would say to Lucy, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> I think uh, very few of us have a proper sense of what it feels like to be condemned, mostly because probably very few of us have been found guilty in a court of law. So part of the reason that we don't have that sense of... Uh, condemnation or understanding the weight of that condemnation is frankly because having not been condemned in a court of law, we don't feel like we're really all that bad in the first place. I think even as Christians, consequently, we have a very shallow, basic misunderstanding of our guilt before God and our deserved condemnation. That's why this passage that we're looking at today is really important to us, because the beginning of Romans chapter 8 is not just the theme of the chapter of Romans chapter 8, though it is, but it's not just the theme of the book of Romans. It's not just the theme of the New Testament. It is, in fact, the theme, the core of the entire Bible because in the first verse of Romans chapter 8, you have the entire gospel, the very heart of the message of the gospel. Now, Paul has been explaining this theme to us. He's been building, like building... Duplo ships, building Lego blocks. He's building one theme upon the other because each one of the pieces is leading us to his grand conclusion. So in Romans 1, he spoke of the gospel, saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In Romans chapter 3, he adds that there's this righteousness from God apart from the law that's being made known. In Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, in 5 verse uh, 9, he says, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? He ends that chapter by saying, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, just so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. These are just a few of the themes that Paul has been building on that now lead us to 
the beginning here of Romans chapter 8. And the point is, it's always been the gospel. He's been building our guilt so that he can bring us to the point that we are before, before us today. It's always about the gospel. And Paul keeps driving this point home. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. And it seems like Paul never gets weary of telling us about the gospel. He seems always to be excited about it. He doesn't stop. There's no letting up about this is the gospel. He's never weary. But the problem is we are. I mean, we get tired of that theme. We, we hear it over and over and over again, and we get tired of talking about it. We find it wearisome and... We find the discussion about grace over and over to be boring and this discussion about theology to become rather tedious. But why do you think it is that? Why do you think that's so exciting to Paul that after all the years of ministering, he's not tired of pounding the gospel, but we, after listening to it for a few weeks, are, are tired of it? And I think it's because of what Jesus was alluding to. Remember the story about when Jesus was anointed by the the woman, she came in, she anointed his, his feet with her tears, she wipes, the, she wipes the, the moisture off with her hair. Here's a woman who has a very sinful past, and those that stood around judged her and him. They said of him, if he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman this is that he's letting touch him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answers by telling the story of a man who had, had been forgiven such a great debt, and, that, and therefore because he had been forgiven so much, he loved his benefactor so much. And Jesus' point was, he who has been forgiven loves little. Isn't that really the reason that we are bored with the gospel? Because deep down, we don't feel we're that guilty. Deep down, we can always point to somebody else and say, now that guy is a derelict. We can always point to the Terry Johnsons in the congregations and make ourselves better off. Isn't that true that the reason that grace means so little to us is that most of us consider ourselves to not be all that bad? We, we're, we're sinners, yeah, we need forgiveness, but we're not that bad of a sinners. We're not desperately in need of forgiveness. And so our understanding of God's condemnation against sin is so superficial to us because really we don't think we deserve it that much. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is really an important climax in, in not just the gospel, but in all of the Bible. Sinclair Ferguson says this is the greatest chapter of chapters in the Bible. It is profound in theology, soaring in eloquence, and thrilling in impact. Derek Thomas calls this the best chapter in the Bible. John Stott says Romans 8 is without a doubt one of the best known, best loved chapters in the Bible. This fellow by the name of Thomas Jacob, who was an evangelical minister 350 years ago, writes, 
who wouldn't be willing to take pains in a mind that has such treasures hidden in it? Search all the scriptures, I will accept none. Turn over the whole word of God from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelations. You won't find any one chapter into which more excellent, sublime, evangelical truths are crowded than this which I am entering upon. The Holy Bible is the book of books. In some respects, this chapter may be styled the chapter of chapters. From first to last, it's high gospel. It's all gospel. It's matter being entirely evangelical. It is indeed the epitome, abridgment, storehouse of all the saints' privileges and duties. You have in this chapter the love of God and of Christ displayed to the utmost, shining forth in its greatest splendor. Paul in it speaks as much of the blessed Holy Spirit, and surely he has more than, ordinar more than ordinarily full of this spirit in the penning of it. Blessed be God for every part and parcel of holy writ, and in special, blessed be God for this eighth chapter of the letter to the Romans. Oh, it's a pity that it's not better understood through the dimness of our light, or better improved through the weakness of our faith. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? And so we'll Paul is taking us back to not just to the previous verse, but he's taking us back to the entire book of Romans, this, these building blocks that he has been building his case on. And he sets forth this, this uh, premise of justification by faith in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Then he begins to unpack the problem of our sin and our desperate need for righteousness in Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And then in 321, he moves to the redemptive work of Christ Jesus as our propitiation and the one through whom we are justified to God through faith. Um, but then he points out that faith alone seems out of the question for so many people because um, the, it re still requires the justifying work of Christ. That's Romans 4.1 4, through 25. And then Right away in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he explains the benefit of this justification through Christ. In verse 6 through 21, he explains our, our union with Adam, who is our federal head, and how that has affected us, that we identify with Adam, because um, from Adam on, there is this downward spiral of sin. And then he brings in this union of Christ as Christ becomes our federal head in chapter 6, and all of the corresponding benefits that we receive through our union with Christ in sanctification. Then in chapter 7, he, he answers the question of the law and its place in our sanctification, and the answer is none. The law does not help sanctify us. The law can only condemn us. The law can only point out how desperately we are in need of God's grace. And Paul points out that even as Christians, with all honestly, there's this conflict. This is where we were last week. There's this conflict that we as Christians have with this new man who we are identifying as being born again and the old man, the old Adam, which still resides in us. There's this conflict that we still face with sin. And then Paul ends chapter 7 by talking about the only liberation we can have of this complex problem of the, the saint who is also the sinner is our faith, our liberation through Christ Jesus. Now we come to chapter 8, verse 1, and here's this opening manifesto, this uncompromising declaration of, of our, our, the, the utter absence of condemnation 
for the Christian. Um, unfortunately, in the English translation, we have moved things around in the sentence to make them easier to read because in the Greek, there's no verb. There's no is in the Greek and, is, and therefore does not start the sentence. The sentence starts with the word no. In the Greek, it says, no, therefore, now condemnation. It, it's emphasizing the fact there is no possibility of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there's the, the, the therefore then, like I said, is pointing back to what Paul has been building upon, and that is that we have deliverance from our guilt, from this domination of sin through the person and, and, and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's been building for. He's been showing us our guilt, our desperate condition in that state. And now he says, for those who are saved, for those who are Christians, there's no possibility, not now, not ever, of being condemned before God. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let's unpack this a bit, like Brandon would say. Let's remove some of the rubble to understand what he's saying by first talking about what he's not saying. When, when, when Paul says there's now no condemnation, what is he not saying? Well, first, He's not saying that there's no one who is condemned by God. Now, some people would say that in the end, because God is love and he loves everyone, in the end, everyone is ultimately saved. We have to push that out completely because the Bible does not teach that ultimately there is no condemnation, that everyone will ultimately be saved. I mean, the whole tenor of Scripture denies that. You, you can't just take an evangelical verse like this that says, no condemnation, stop there and imply that no one is going to go to hell. I mean, you think about the words of Jesus when he was, uh, John chapter 3, I can't get started. Whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains upon him. So the condemnation here is referring to the wrath of God towards unbelievers, that if you choose to reject God now, your destiny will, will not be in the absence of God, but your destiny will be in the presence of God's wrath. And that is a very terrifying prospect. God condemns those who defy him because there will not be ultimate anarchy. There will be eternal justice. There will be um, the right being done. And Jesus speaks many times of hell, more than heaven. And he tells us that it is, an, it is an awful place. It is a place where there is weeping and wailing of gnashing of teeth. A terrible place. And God condemns people who reject him to such an eternity. Now, secondly, Paul is not saying that there's nothing in us as Christians that deserve his condemnation. I've heard that too. You know, that God looks upon you, he hates the sin, he loves the sinner, he doesn't condemn you for anything that you do. That's simply not true. God condemns our sin. And we, God in his in His generous mercy humbly inflicts us with hardship to make us more useful to the kingdom, to teach us to be, to be humble. He gives us sickness. He gives us heartache. He gives us delays in answering his prayers. And we've talked a lot about
many of us wrestle with a, a signature sin that we keep going back to, and we're so frustrated because all the prayer and all of the time that's gone by, and yet we have not gained victory over it. And all of this because God is teaching us the consequence of self-sufficiency, that you cannot on your own power be victorious. You need the inner working of the Holy Spirit. You need the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. You need to finally come to the point in your life where you say, I can only get through this through His grace. Now, third, Paul does not say that the Christian is not going to experience God's correction, his, his uh, chastisement for behavior that certainly deserves condemnation in the Christian. Uh, the Bible says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So if we're not being chastened, we are not God's children. And that's a terrifying prospect. It'd be a very fearful thing if there was no chastening and no correction because it would mean that these words are addressing those who are damned. And we know that God is gracious and he will not condemn his own and so he will act as a loving father and he will correct us. He will chasten that kind of behavior in us. So no condemnation does not mean God won't condemn our behavior and correct it in our lives. And fourth, Paul doesn't say that your sinning will never be condemned by God. And so many people say, well, God is, God is not judging. God does not judge. He judges no one. That's not true. I mean, how many Pharisees did uh, Jesus condemn about the way they lived their lives? And the activities of the false prophets, Jesus condemns. And when Peter sought to deflect Jesus away from the cross, Jesus condemned his action and said, get thee behind me, Satan. The heretics in Galatia were condemned by the Apostle Paul. The failures of Abraham and Lot and Noah and David and Peter are all condemned by God. Every one of us as Christians have done something in which God says, that's not right. That is inappropriate. So he's condemning, he's judging the behavior the, the vile behavior of some of the Christians at Corinth, God condemns and judges. He afflicts them. I mean, there's not one of us who's not liable, who's not justly given the condemnation for our behavior. James, uh, I think it's James 3, chap chapter 3, verse 2, where, God's, where James tells us, for we all stumble in many ways. This, sin is sin whether it occurs in God's children or whether it occurs in the lost and merits that condemnation. So these great opening words, this opening salvo in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is not saying that there's not going to be any divine condemnation for anyone, and it's not saying that Christians are not going to have struggles and faults and failures and infirmities and times where we give in to pressures and give in to our fleshly lusts. He's not saying that Christians should not condemn themselves. You should identify sin in your life and condemn that and walk away from it. Well, if it's not saying any of these things, then what is he saying? What does this text say? Again, I mentioned that, that the first word in this sentence is in the original Greek is the word no. And it's a very strong form of the negative. It's, it's jagged. It's abrupt. 
It's not meant to read smoothly. It's meant to be startling, to, to wrestle your attention. There is no condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ. That's the force of the text before us here. No condemnation. The word here, condemnation, is, is seized from the law courts. It only occurs two times in, in the New Testament. And the, to be condemned refers to the meeting before the law court. You are sitting or standing before the judge when he comes out to give you the sentence of death. We don't do this in our law courts, but in others, when the, judge, when the person's found guilty and, and, the, and the, the sentence would be death, the judge comes out, he sits in his bench, and he covers his head, or he wears a black hat, because this is not a happy occasion. This is a mournful occasion. This is a, a, a cause of, of great grief and reluctance, but not hesitation. And the sentence of death is carried out, and Paul is saying, you as a Christian will never face that. You will never face the judge for your condemnation. How comforting that is because the reality is that we are guilty men and women and we deserve God's condemnation even if you don't believe it right now. God will never, ever condemn you. Of course, that's not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that everyone, every Christian will be condemned to spend time in purgatory before they get to go to heaven. You may be going to purgatory for hundreds or perhaps thousands of years until while you're suffering in purgatory, condemned to purgatory, somehow, which they are not able to explain, somehow your sins are purged from you, from all the prayers of the, the priests and all the, the, the litany, the masses which are done in the churches. Somehow they are released from purgatory, and then finally they get to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I told you last week a true story about Terry Johnson and golfing. <laughs> true story, Terry and I were golfing together out in Florida, and there was a terrible thunderstorm that came, and it was very loud, and the lightning was striking on the golf course around us. So far, so good? And Terry sought refuge underneath a tree, which is a really bad place <laughs> to seek refuge. I don't know that that's true. <laughs> well, at any rate, it startled me so much that I had a vision thereafter. I had this dream where Terry and I were on the golf course, and the lightning did, in fact, strike the tree and killed us both instantly. And there we stood in heaven, surprised, shocked, <laughs> And we were met by this being. It wasn't St. Peter. It must have been such some angel. And the angel said to me, he said, the good news is you get to go to heaven, but the bad news is you, before you're allowed into the celestial city, you have to spend a thousand years with this woman. And out walks this old woman. She was hideously ugly. She had hair on her face and dripping snot out of her nose. <laughs> And she was cranky and bitter and condescending. And the angel said, this is the woman you must spend a thousand years with. And I said, oh, this is not what I expected. But if it means that's what I have to do to get to heaven, I'll, I'll do it. And then the angel turned to Terry and said, and Terry, you must spend a thousand years with this woman. And out walks this beautiful, young, 
smart, witty, kind, and gentle woman. And I looked at the angel and I said, it's not fair. And the angel said, my son, she too must pay for her sins. Who are these people that Paul talks about who will be delivered from condemnation? And we've already established the fact that God will condemn and that there will be some spent, sent to spend eternity in hell. Who are these people, therefore, who are going to escape this condemnation? Well, you don't have to guess. I mean, it's right there in your text. It's the very next word. Who will escape this great condemnation? those who are in Christ Jesus. He is not describing any believers who are perfect, who have removed sin from their lives, who are, who are escaping the wrath of God because their lives are blameless. No, these are sinners like everyone else. Here in this sanctuary are people going to heaven who are no different than the millions who are going to spend eternity in hell. And may I add, there are some who uh, are probably worse than millions who are going to spend eternity in hell. I myself am one of them. Why then, if we are as bad or worse than the millions who are going to, to hell for eternity, why have we escaped such a great, awful condemnation? And here's the answer. It's not an enigma. The answer is, we have been united to Christ Jesus. We are joined with him, joined like in a marriage. He is our federal head. We are identified with him. Where he is, so are we. Where he is not, we will never be. We are joined to Christ Jesus. We have been grafted in. We are the branches grafted in to the vine so that his, his life flows through us, his fruit comes from us. He has become our federal head, and so we are one with him in his body. We are inseparable from, from him forever and ever. Because he cannot suffer condemnation in hell, he never did, he never will. Neither can we. It would be just as impossible for God to condemn Christ as it would be for him to condemn the person who is in Christ. Jesus did more than just become a man and live a glorious, perfect life, a pleasing life. There was a point at which Jesus prays this intercession, and you are included in this prayer, where he says, I will assume, Father, their guilt. I will plead guilty not for my own sins, but for theirs. And I ask you, Father God, to punish me just as you would to punish them. I'll take their place. And that's what Christ has done in his unique atoning death. He's, he's paid an un, unpayable debt. He has extracted the guilty from the fires of hell, not the good. He has appeased uh, the infinite 
just anger of God towards our wretched sins. And we know that God has been satisfied with the penalty that Christ paid because on the third day, God raised him back from the dead. Jesus is, he was, he has always been dearly beloved by the Father. He said that on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there was never a time when he was more dearly loved than when he hung between heaven and earth nailed to a cross and suffered not the indignation that the Romans placed upon him, but the pain that was inflicted upon him by a wrathful, holy God for the sins that you deserved to be on that cross for. And so you can see why it's so important for us to be in Christ, to be joined with him forever. And how do you do that? You do that by believing into him, by entrusting all that you are, everything that you hope for into Jesus Christ. So that when you stand before God, and it's a very legitimate question, and every one of us ought to ask it of ourselves and ask it of each other. When you stand before God and he says, why should I allow you into my presence, my holy presence? You have one legitimate answer, and it is not I'm basically a good person, and if you weigh me in the balances, I think I'll come out all right. The answer is, I don't deserve to come into heaven, but I have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And because I am in Him, there is therefore now no condemnation. And so then it's impossible for God to smite you any more than it's possible for God to smite His own Son. God knew you before the foundations of the earth. He chose you and gave you to his son, Jesus Christ, to be his possession, his bride, his body. And then we were in Christ the day that he was born under the law. And we were in him when he lived a life of righteousness. And we were in him in his death. And we were in him when he was nailed to the cross at Golgotha and condemned. And we were in him when he was raised back to life. And we will be in him when he returns again and raises our dead bodies corrupt and defiled and becoming dirt and dust. And he raises us back again. We will be in him. And we will be in him when he ascends to his throne in glory, we will be there with him. Where Jesus is not and has never been in hell, you will not be or ever will be. Because wherever he is, there too you will be. So we're safe in him. And you say, okay, I feel safe. I, once I get to heaven, at least I'll, I'll know I'm safe. I'll, I'll know I won't fall away. The truth is, you may be happier when you get to heaven than you are now, but you will not be safer in heaven than you are right now. Because Jesus said, no one can snatch them away from me. The Father has given them to me. You are bound to him, forged to him through the cross. And that can never be taken away. I must press forward. Verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So let's realize right up front that there is a law. There is such a thing as the law of sin. Now you just glance at the previous chapter, you know, chapter 7, when we see there's a law of sin. Paul says, uh, I myself, the very last verse of, ch of chapter 7, I myself serve, I'm a slave to God's law in my mind, but I, in my sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. So I have to realize, like we were talking about last week, that there's, 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 a, there's a reality that sin still dwells within me, in my, in my human, in my flesh, in my fallen man. And that sin nature is very energetically at work in me, causing me to get distracted. It's, it's work in all of our lives. The law of sin says, do what you think is right. Don't spend your time reading the Bible. And if anybody else brings up the subject of religion, change the subject. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. Now, you've got one life to live, so go for the gusto. That's the law of sin. It says to every person all the time, do what I tell you to do. And the sinner can't do anything else. Like Paul, we too were the slave of sin. And it's called the, the law of sin and death because the consequence of this law of sin is death. And, of course, we mean that in two ways. If you are not saved, you are spiritually dead right now. You are unable to respond to God's love. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But we're not pure in heart, I mean, as, as sinners. We're, as sinners, we're still dead in our trespass and in our sin. And that, that leads me to the second thing, because you are spiritually dead now, it leads us to what the Bible refers to as the second death. The consequence of dying spiritually dead is to go to hell, which is the second death. That's the logic of rejecting God in your life is that you will be condemned to an eternity not of his absence, but his justice. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. The wages of sin is death, and that is the law of sin and death. And the soul that sins shall surely die, that's not just simply a metaphor of speech. It's a frightening reality. That's how it is for all of mankind. It stares us in the face unless he is out of his sin and in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's a second law that's mentioned here too. Not only is there a law of sin and death, but the second law that's mentioned in verse 2 is that this law is the law of the Holy Spirit. I lost my place. Well, the end. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so there's this law of the Holy Spirit just in juxtaposition. The law of sin brings forth death. The law of the Spirit brings forth life. Uh, John Stott says, and if Romans 7 has been preoccupied with the place of the law, Romans 8 is preoccupied 
with the work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, the law and its synonyms are mentioned some 31 times, but the Holy Spirit only once in verse 6. Whereas in the 20, first 27 verses of chapter 8, the Spirit of God is referred to 19 times. And what an essential contrast Paul paints between the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. In speaking of this uh, law of the Spirit, Paul makes it very unambiguous that he's talking about the Holy Spirit in his text here. Um, remember when Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a teacher of the law and came to Jesus and he said, we know that you're a teacher of the law. No one could do the things that you do unless God was endorsing him. And Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Paul, talking to, the, uh, uh, to Titus, explains God has saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's the Holy Spirit then who bestows upon us life and then who energizes us in order to live um, lives of obedience to Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit's mentioned all through the Bible. You know, right from the beginning in creation, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. You have, you have the Holy Spirit throughout eternity as God, the one of the triune beings of God. You have the Holy Spirit in creation. You have the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament. But um, perhaps the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost best demonstrates this concept of the law of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you just think back to Acts chapter 2, remember what Jesus tells them that they are to do. He doesn't tell them acts of contrition and asking for forgiveness and agonizing over their sin in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives them one thing that he tells them to do. He tells them, stay in Jerusalem a few days and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Unlike those who want to give us the Holy Spirit today who tell us, if you want to receive the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues, you have to lay yourself down on the altar. You have to agonize for your sins. You have to completely repent of all that you've done. And then perhaps the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's not what Jesus says these original hearers are going to experience when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And as it happened, as they obediently waited a few days, they were gathered together, Acts chapter 2, when suddenly, violently, evidentially, the Holy Spirit came upon them. There was a sound like the rushing wind. They saw something that looked like flames of fire that came upon them and distributed to each one not the elect few, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, evidenced by they began to speak in other tongues. Other people heard them doing so, and what did they say in their tongues? They were praising God. Again, the point is they didn't have to do some rigmarole to get the Holy Spirit. And ever since that time, the Holy Spirit comes upon everyone who receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the Spirit comes upon them. And they are delivered by this law of the Spirit of life. And then, since that time, the Holy Spirit comes upon not just special few people like we see in the Old Testament, kings and, and prophets and priests. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon all flesh, 
not meaning every person, but every type of person, every, every tribe, every nation, male and female, and he remains upon them because they are saved through grace in Jesus Christ, and that is affected by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he's explaining this law of the Spirit to that congregation. He says, do you understand what's happened to you? What gave you life? What set you free when you were dead in your trespasses and sin? Well, let me tell you, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's the law of the spirit of life. That's how it works in every single believer. This life-giving spirit that Jesus dispatches into your life. The spirit opens your heart. He, he convicts your conscience. He subdues the reign of sin in, in you. He, he, he illuminates your understanding. He gives you new birth. He begins a life within you, the life of heaven. And it begins to grow mysteriously and influentially invading every part of you. And it grows, and it changes you, and it plants new appetites, new desires, new griefs, new understandings, new longings. And you begin to long for the glory of Jesus rather than the long for the amusements and the pleasure of this sin-fallen world. It is far more powerful than the law of sin and death. It sets you free from that old law. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What's Paul describing here? He's describing the effects of the cross. That when Christ goes to the cross in our place, Sin is condemned, and Christ drinks fully the wrath of God. He drinks it to its dregs, this cup of wrath that God has placed for him. He accepts it, and when he goes to the cross, he's, he, he accepts God's wrath in our place. Again, Jesus was not put off. He was not afraid. He was not concerned, worried about the punitive treatment of the Roman soldiers. He went to the cross for the purpose of receiving punishment from his Father for my sin, in order that my sin, your sin, might be removed. This is the gospel. Justification is where God pronounces you just in Jesus Christ his pronouncement that he no longer finds you guilty. He takes away our sins. He removes them. He places them in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. The reality is there's no earthly power that can blot the stain of sin from us. And yet here we are told there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He's our only hope in eternity. Verse 3, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul's really careful to be precise in his words here. He does not say that Christ came in sinful flesh. 
because that would certainly imply that there was sin in him. Nor does he say, in the likeness of flesh, because that might imply that he only appeared to be human. No, he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What he's saying is that Christ came in the same flesh that we have, only with the acceptance of sin. In other words, when Jesus was walking around in Nazareth as a little kid, he was indistinguishable from all the other little kids in Nazareth, including his own brothers. He looked exactly the same. There's no glow emanating from his pores, no cute little halo running around. He was like everybody else. He ate. He went to the bathroom. He sweat. He bled. He spat. He was just like all the other kids. But he was not like Adam, because Adam was Adam was placed in a world where there was not sin. Here with Jesus, he's placed in a world where sin abounds everywhere he looks. Sin's everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. Only he was able to overcome his temptations. He remains undefiled and separate from sin. Yet, look, it wasn't all that incredible for Jesus to be accused by other people of being a glutton. He... he, he spends way too much time at food parties. And they accused him of being a wine-bibber. You, you drink too much. And he was accused of being a friend of publicans. We'll just say politicians. He was accused of being a friend of politicians and sinners. And that didn't seem all that surprising. And they accused him of being a blasphemer, a false teacher. They accused him of, of uh, I don't know what else, but you get the point. They, they said he was a deceiver. They made all these accusations against Jesus because it just made sense, because he looks like everybody else. And he was like everybody else, except there was no sin in him. And yet this incarnation, this sinless physical life was not enough, and living a blameless life was not enough. He must die as a sacrifice for our sins. He must make atonement. He must himself purge sins. He must give what the law requires. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that the Son of God came to do what the law could not do. The law could point out your failure. It could show that you're guilty, but it had no power to change that, and no power to make you justified. The doom of sin must fall on flesh. And so Jesus identifies with himself identifies himself with us and he takes on our flesh and there God condemns flesh in the flesh for us. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I admit it's probably wrong of me to uh, prejudge Trent and Secora Se for all the charges that he's <laughs> been accused of, especially I don't know the facts. It just seems like a daunting number of heinous crimes for an innocent person to show up for. <laughs> Not that I'm accusing him of it. <laughs> okay, yes, I am. <laughs> My point is, you fold your arms and you condemn a guy like that because of his guilt. 
And it's easy for us to close our arms and condemn extremely heinous people like Stalin or Pol Pot or Hitler for their guilt. And we would all agree, if anyone deserves hell, it's those guys. My point is, you deserve it as much as they do. We're not to be accepted from deserving his condemnation. The reality is, you've probably never had to go to court. You've probably never had to face an accusation. You've probably never been convicted and condemned in a court. And so you don't feel like you're all that bad of a person. Let me pose a question to you. What if I'm wrong? What if Christianity is not true? What if Christ is not the Savior of the world? Jesus says, hell will be a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And if you face God without a Savior, you will be a consignment. You will be consigned to a place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You will hate where you are. You will weep for finding yourself there, but you will in no way imply you don't deserve to be there. But praise God, he has given us a savior. So what? So thank be to God that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. I'll invite the men to come forward and distribute the elements and the worship team to come back up. Let's pray. As we learn more about you, God, and as we come to accept and embrace the truth about ourselves, cause us to love you more and marvel at this great grace which in your love for us has passed over the judgment that we deserve and in place not only finding ourselves excused and not guilty, but rather vaulted into your presence because of our identity with Christ as being co-heirs with him in your presence and glory. What an, an amazing, unfathomable change has taken place. Father, may we ruminate on this and may we be grateful in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, my soul. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. 
at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he said take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup has been poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I think it's important for us to remember, not only as we look back at the cross and we see the price which Jesus paid for us, but the fact that that's just part of the picture, that we're also looking forward to the time when we eat this together with Jesus in the new kingdom. I think this message that we've just heard today is really an adequate, an adequate communion message because that's really what it's, communion's all about. But I think the part that it leaves out is that we look forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And if you are redeemed, if you are in Christ, if there is therefore now no condemnation for you, you will be at that table too. This is the body of Jesus which has been given for you. And this is the cup of the new covenant, the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And we remember the cross and we look forward to the wedding feast when we'll be there with him. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's pray. Once again, Father God, we thank you for these tangible reminders of the union that is ours in Christ Jesus through your Holy Spirit, that we are joined to him, not as hundreds or thousands or millions of individual Christians all saved by the same grace, but as one family, one bride, and we are all part of that. So we share this meal not only with you, we share it with one another. May your grace abide upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing this last song?
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.